You know, a few weeks ago, we, um, we just, oh, good morning, forgot to say that. Good morning to those online, too. Uh, good to have you here, really, really is good. You know, a few weeks ago, we decided that we were going to pick a word for the year, and in fact, she decided that months ago, and I was amazed, still amazed, how well it fits right now, this particular time. We picked the word church. And if you remember, we looked at what Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, it's unstoppable. So we thought, let's make our first series in, the, in this whole series about church called Church Unstoppable. And trying to dig into that and understand that. And we looked at a pattern in the book of Acts where it looks like the church is defeated over and over again. We used the term that it's just apparent defeat. And even in our own lives, the defeat we suffer is always just apparent defeat because God promises us victory at the end. Well, then we started out with an acrostic. We used this word wife, worship, instruction, fellowship, and evangelism. We call it the wife of the church. These are the four things that make us unstoppable. And if a church doesn't practice these four things, you will be stopped. You're not really the unstoppable church that God called you to be. And we've seen churches stop before. Haven't you seen churches, quote unquote, kind of go out of business and not work anymore? Yeah, it's because something's lacking in the four things, the worship, the instruction, or the fellowship and the evangelism. So to get on track with what we need to understand ourselves to be as the church, we thought, well, let's go through these four things. And last week we talked about how worshiping church, we explained what worship was and how worshiping church is literally unstoppable. Now this week we're going to talk about an instructing church. Because an instructing church, one who's centered on the Bible and studying the Bible becomes an unstoppable church. And so that's what we want to do today. We want to focus in on scripture and what it says about itself and what it says to us. And we want to learn from it because an instructing church is an unstoppable church. So before we go any further, what I'd like to do is just pray with you about that briefly, that God would help you get understanding and insight into your own life and into your own life in measurement or in, in comparison to the scriptures. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, we come before you today humbly because we know we need to learn. Many of us have even decided we want to be lifelong learners, but Lord, sometimes we, we, we don't know, we don't understand, it doesn't make sense. So we, we pray that right now your Holy Spirit, who you've said would be here when we gather together, would actually instruct us about your word so we can understand how important it is and where it fits in our life and how we can apply it in our life. Please, Lord, give us this insight. Give us this understanding. I ask these things so that we could be an unstoppable church, the church that you promised would go on forever and affect generation after generation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, let me start out with this. Uh, years ago, um, my father-in-law, who was a very godly man, a pastor himself and a president of a seminary, all kinds of great things he'd done in his life, but when he was only 35 years old, he had a massive heart attack. In fact, my wife, who was the oldest one of his kids, was there when it happened. Seeing her dad fall on the floor is a traumatic experience for her. He had this massive heart attack. This is the 1960s. And then he was brought to the hospital. And they, back then, they cut you all the way open and spread you open and do open heart surgery. And uh, he's all clogged up with cholesterol. And they, they put in all kinds of bypasses. And he recovers. And back then, especially recovery was a long process. And it took him a long time to get better. 
Well, 10 years later, when he's 45 years old, he has another massive heart attack. And they have to do surgery, and the surgeons are very skeptical that this is going to work uh, because of the scar tissue and stuff from the first heart surgery, and they are kind of predicting his death. By that time, I'm married to my wife, and I, I went through this with my father-in-law. When he was 65 years old, he died on the tennis court of a massive heart attack. What's interesting is for many of those years, I remember dating Lori and getting married to Lori and hanging around. Lori's dad always had to be on a special diet. Noah was on this special diet to reduce cholesterol, to stop this from happening. And to them, back then, they were teaching, oh, you've got to be on a diet that eats no fat at all. Reduce your fat intake. Take, eat all these carbohydrates. <laughs> What's so funny, and it's not funny, is now 20-something years later, we look back and go, well, that was stupid. They're actually building cholesterol by that. Now we have totally different diets. And I won't even name the names of the diets back then, but they've all gone by the wayside. What the experts and the scientists and the medical community was all saying you have to do, now we see was absolutely the opposite of what you need to do. But my father-in-law didn't know any better. He didn't know. They didn't know. When my dad was 61 years old, he was very healthy and strong. And um, he had to go to the hospital real quick because something was wrong with him and they discovered he had a brain tumor the size of a tennis ball in his brain. Two days later, he's dead. Whoa. Doctor says to my mom, you know, if we only knew, if we only knew even a few months ago, if we, and we don't know, this might have been there for years, if we only knew it was there. We could have done something. We could have prevented this. We could have operated. There's all kinds of things we could have done. But he didn't know. Just didn't know. Back on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese decided to bomb Pearl Harbor, destroy our Navy fleet, kill thousands of Americans. We were trying to stay out of World War II and the fight going on in Europe. Two days later, after the bombing, uh, I think it was two or three days later, Germany declared war on us. All of a sudden, we're drug into the World War. We we're trying to stay out of now, people, historians often look back and say, well, if we only knew this, if we only knew about Hitler, and if we only knew about Japan, if we only, yeah, if only, but we didn't know. <laughs> In 1911, excuse me, 1912, April 14th, the Titanic sunk. 1,500 plus people drowned to death. A year earlier, in 1911, an engineer building it said, even God couldn't sink this ship. Well, they didn't know. They didn't know about icebergs. They didn't know about the way they were constructing it. They didn't know. Now, here we are, 2021. The coronavirus has hit the world. There's this pandemic going on. People are dying from it. Now they, they tell us they're dying more than ever before. We're all wearing masks and all this craziness is happening. And people are going, yeah, well, if China had only, if China only knew, it knows Europe, if Europe would have, and if America would, you know, it's like, but we didn't know. The Bible says that the human being has been given the capacity to think and a brain to think far beyond everything else in creation. But still, we don't know a lot of things. We're, we're actually ignorant. The Bible says our biggest problems are not in, our biggest problems like in society or in business. 
or in our environment around us, or in our economy, or in science, or in technology, or even in religion, are because we don't know what we think we might know. In fact, we're learning all the time of things we didn't know earlier. And the major thing the Bible says we're ignorant of is God and sin and how devastated it is within us and in the human race. And so God decided to start communicating thousands of years ago to mankind. Raised up Abraham, started speaking to him. Raised up Moses, started speaking to him. And you can go right through Joshua and Elijah and all the Old Testament prophets, God talking to them. In the New Testament, has recorded God talking to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then talking to us through the apostles he brought up and the starting of the church and, and, and Peter and James and John and, and, and the apostle Paul, all communicating with us over and over. So much so that God said, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to make sure this book is understood by all all the human race because I need, to, I need to save them from their ignorance. They just don't know. And why do we have such a problem? Why, do, why are there so many things we don't know? The scripture tells us because ignorance has a partner. The partner it often uses on us to enslave us is called arrogance. Yeah. Ignorance joins up with arrogance and it destroys us. Because we think we know. We think we understand. We think we understand God. We think we understand ourselves. We think we know what we know. We think we feel what we feel. And God, through, 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 through his word, is trying to communicate to us, no, no, you're being deceived. You're actually enslaved, is the word the scripture uses, by your own ignorance and your own arrogance. That's what scripture teaches. And God, through his word, is literally trying to set you free from your own arrogance, your own ignorance that lives within you. It says, the only way I can is deal with this thing called sin. That's why Jesus came, died on the cross. It's like God longing to set us free. I put down in the, in the big idea of the sermon, scripture, scriptural instruction is about the knowledge you need for life. The life we need to be set free from our own ignorance about God, about ourselves, about life. The scriptures over and over again are really God's life-saving tool for humanity. But we've got to read it. How does this actually work? Let me show you three points in this three-point outline. It goes like this. Scripture addresses the core issues of life. That's the very first one. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 13. We're going to start with you. Ready? Turn your phones on. Whatever you got to do, look at it with me. Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 13. I don't have time to set up the whole context, but the context has to do a lot, a lot with about entering the rest. He's saying, my people suffer from a lack of rest a lack because they lack understanding. And their own arrogance has gotten in the way. And I want to set them free. So he says this. Ready? Starting with verse 11. For let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by, what, by the same uh, sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from, from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. Wow. 
It's telling us here that the scriptures are in, can get actually inside us. Do you see why it says that? It, it's saying the Bible is alive and it can actually get inside you like the coronavirus, like the vaccine you get. The only way you're going to get better is not from the outside, not from society, not from other teaching. You're going to need the Word of God. It actually gets in and cures the problem. What's the problem? My ignorance and my arrogance. And it's saying the Bible is alive enough like an active germ cell or an active healing cell. It can actually get in your system, in your brain, in your heart, in your soul, and bring change. That's the whole idea of this passage. Saving you from a lot of problems. <sighs> Scripture can do this because it's alive. And he, he describes that a little more. Did you notice? Sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow. We don't even know what we think sometimes or feel, right? We can't understand our own thoughts or feelings. And, and it says, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing's hidden from it. Um, it's, it's, the scriptures are trying to say here that the Bible's actually divine. Now, I don't know if, what, if you know these simple statistics, but did you know the accumulation of this book, of books, took a 1,500-year period of time before it was all accumulated? 1,500 years. It was written by human authors that God used literally 40 different people, from Moses to the Apostle Paul to all kinds of different writers. And the Bible tells us that God superintended through them. In other words, he oversaw them, didn't just dictate through them, but literally wrote to them, gave them the thoughts, gave them the words to write down as God tries to communicate to us about our ignorance that we all have and our arrogance that we all have to save us from what debilitating, destructive force it will have upon us and to bring us to what's called salvation. And he does it through 1,500-year period of time, 40 different authors. On three different continents, in three different languages, that's absolutely bizarre. Do you understand? There is no book, no book. It's laughable. All other books are just totally different than that. How could you even find three authors that all agree with each other, a hundred years apart, let alone fifteen hundred years apart? Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's impossible, but it's true. That's what you have in the Bible. Just the very existence of this book proves its miraculousness, that it's not human, it's divine. And so, when this author writes to us, God writes to us here, well, the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's trying to communicate to us, this is divine. It's not just words, it's not just human. You know, um, maybe to explain this, it's, it's, it's so frustrating to try and get it across as clear as it is, but let me tell you a story about something that happened to me years and years and years ago. It was in the 1970s, and I was in seminary down in Dallas. Maybe, maybe to give you a little background, I had become a Christian when I, was, when I was 18, and it was a miraculous conversion for me. And so I was part of the Jesus movement. I was trying to help other kids have this experience, like a change began inside me that came out in my care for people, my love for God, my love for people, my desire to, I just, it was a transformational thing. It was continuing. It still continues today. Well, 
So I'm trying to help other kids come to this. And some kids seem to get it, some kids not. Some kind of halfway, some took a long time, some real quick. It was all different. But I was a little frustrated by the time I went to seminary. Because, you know, I've been doing this four or five years and I'm going to seminary. And it's like, wow. Some of these kids, they get stuck. I didn't understand what bipolar was or what we used to call manic depressive. I, I, I didn't understand that that's where some kids were stuck. I didn't understand what great depression or clinical depression would do on somebody. And I'm trying to help a kid that's really clinically depressed and wonder why, hey, it's worked for me. Why didn't it work for you? And that kind of thing. I don't get it. And I'm still fr- So when I hear in class, hear that I can go to a class taught by a clinical psychiatrist, a guy named Dr. Frank Minnerth, who's a Christian, and a psychiatrist, you know, the MD, he can write prescriptions for antidepressants presence, the whole thing. I'm like, hey, I would like to hear what this guy has. So I start going to his class, and it's amazing. I'm just sitting there. I'm like drinking up everything he's saying. This is, now maybe with his equipment, I can actually help people who are really stuck, or really unable to get over a conflict, or really unable to get past their depression. Maybe I can really help them. And he's giving me some helpful tools, but one day in class, he literally shocked me. He's in class, up at the podium like I am here, takes out his Bible, and he reads this verse. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he says this, nothing else in your life addresses the core issues of your life more than and better than the Bible. He says, and he goes on to, he like lists, he says, the Bible guides you, comforts you, teaches you, challenges you, leads you, instructs you, and on, 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 he says. And I'm sitting there, what? What? I have a clinical psychiatrist here. He counsels with people every day. He's in charge of a psych ward of people up in Richardson General Hospital. It's amazing. And he's telling me the best thing he says. He says this to us. He says, guys, when I'm going to write a script, the most powerful script I could write to anybody, the most powerful drug I know of is the Bible. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I learned that when I was five years old in Sunday school. You're telling me? And then to even top it off, he pulls out a three by five card out of his pocket and says, yeah, here's a memory verse I'm working on today. A memory verse? I did that in Sunday school. Yeah, I write the reference on this side and I write the verse on this. You know, nowadays we pull out our phone, right? Pull out our phone and go, look, here's my memory verse today. He, this clinical psychiatrist, a full-fledged MD, working, but you have to go to, you know, to get the psychiatry, not a psychology, but a psychiatry degree, you have to go through all of medical school and become an actual doctor. Then you have to go to psychiatry school. He'd been through all that, now practicing for years, and he says, yeah, the most powerful script I could write anybody is the Bible. Already written. You just got to get it into your cranium, down into your heart, and out into your life. It'll literally transform you, bearing anything I know. He says, okay, 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 I know. I got people in the psych ward and people I counsel. They're not ready for all this yet. I got to work with them. I mean, if I start quoting scripture at them, they'll have some fantasy or go on. He says, okay, I got to. Not everybody's ready. But he says, do you, read, do you look what it says? He says, it, it gives a division of soul and spirit. That's my job, he says. What? Yeah. When someone comes to me and they have a really serious problem, they're hearing voices, or they have a difficulty with this, or they're depressed, or they're sad, or they're angry, or whatever, he says, I've got to find out, 
is this physically caused? Do they have a brain tumor? Do they have something else that's causing them to be so abnormal? Do they have hyperthyroidism? Do they have, you know, all these questions. He says, then I got to find out, well, maybe it's psychological. Maybe there's a psychological abnormality or a thing I need to address in their life or they need to address in their life. And we need to talk through and we need to have several sessions about it. Or maybe it's spiritual. The Bible does talk about demons. The Bible does talk about spiritual strongholds in our life and things we get stuck in. That's my job. I diagnose and fix people. I diagnose and I fix people. That's what I do. And I'm telling you students, the best thing you can get to have that happen is what it says right here. The Word of God diagnoses and fixes you. Whoa, I'm telling you guys, I'm sitting there just totally shocked. Like, you gotta be kidding me. And you yourself use Bible verses? Oh yeah, he says, man, like back in college days, I was so depressed. I went through all these difficult times in my life. Nothing like the Word of God. So I walk, I walk out of that classroom and I'm like, I blew my mind so much. I'm like, totally respect this book more than I ever did before. No matter what you want to teach about theologically, here's a psychiatrist saying, yeah, but it's practically the most helpful tool I got. It's the best thing I got in my cabinet. I, I gotta admit, I, I didn't look at it that way. Do you? I mean, I would think if you did, you'd say, I'm gonna read that thing. I'm gonna understand this thing. I'm gonna get into it because I got problems. <laughs> and don't we all? And a lot of us, because you know why? You're ignorant. Huh. Spiritually, psychologically, even physically of your problems. You're ignorant. And what gets in your way is you think you know. You think you already understand. You think you know what it says even. No, you don't. Got a lot to, more to learn. So what's so funny is I'm 68 now, and boy, I realize I'm just scratching the surface. I still got a lot more to learn, that's for sure. So do all of us. We need this book, and this just as one verse alone is telling us so much about what we need is the Word of God. It's alive. Secondly, Scripture is the most dependable thing in life. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, to the great Sermon on the Mount. It goes through three chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and other followers, and he's trying to explain to them about the Bible. And um, he says this, which really is kind of like what Jesus' view of Scripture is. How does Jesus view the Bible? At that time, it would have been the entire Old Testament, right? Look what he says. Do not think that I came or I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Really? For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We'll come back to verse 19 in a minute. Did you hear what he said? He said, all else is going to change. Everything on the earth, on, on, in the heavens, the, all that you can see, all the stars, that's going to change. The earth, yeah, it's going to change. But even if all that changes, all that you know now... There's one thing that won't change. God's word. It can't. It won't change. Really? He says, heaven and earth will pass away. For truly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away. But not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know, um, th this is significant. It's like he's saying, 
and we feel it right now to a big degree because of the coronavirus. Things are changing a lot around us, right? And he's going, yeah, I told you it was going to change. And, and, but our security is not supposed to be in the environment around us, or how strong it is, or how, how we're devastating it, or in the our, our government, or our military is being strong enough to keep off our enemies, or money, or health, or any other thing. Your security should rest in the Word of God. All else will pass away, but the Word won't. Hold on to the Word, is what he's saying, right? Really clearly, he's saying that. And then he gives an illustration. He says... Uh, Everything will pass away, but not a dot, not an iota, and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What is an iota and a dot? Well, let me explain it to you. Um, there's different translations of that in the, in the Greek language here. And remember back in the King James Version, it even said it differently. But what it's literally trying to talk about, an iota is a yod in the Hebrew language. A yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew language. So Jesus is saying, not even a yod in the Old Testament will be changed. Then he goes on to say, a dot. What does he mean by dot? He's talking about the distinguishing between a resh and a dalit. A dalit is like our d, a resh is like our r. And, 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 and when you write them in Greek language, it's like, it goes up like this and turns that way. Well, that's what a ratio looks like. What's a dollar? Goes up this way, turns that way, but it's got a little dot on that corner, a little dot, a little, a little thing that goes that way. He says, I'm telling you, heaven and earth will pass away, but not the smallest letter in all that's written in the Old Testament or even a part of a letter will be changed even a little until every single word is fulfilled. Holy smokes, did Jesus believe in inerrancy? Did Jesus believe that absolutely everything is perfect and going to happen exactly like he said? Yes. You can't deny it. That's what he said. Maybe you're unaware, but back in the 19th century, the 1800s, there was a popular uh, way of thinking about the Bible that was emerging. It was called higher criticism. And they took a very critical eye toward the scriptures saying, oh, come on. Like the 10 plagues of Egypt, never happened. That was made up by a lot of those Hebrews. Just to kind of boast about their strength and their God kind of thing. Lots of these miracles, nah, you know. I think I can explain those away pretty easily by different things. You know, and you know what? We also have proof that some of these things aren't accurate at all because... Some of those tribes that they mentioned conquering and stuff like that, like Joshua and all his battles, uh, yeah, well, guess what? They, they never existed. There's no, there's, no, there's no truth to that because we can't find any historical document even mentioning those tribes or those peoples or those cities even. No record. And then there was a group of theologians that joined with them called liberal theology. Well, that was quite a while ago now. And what's happened ever since that time is archaeology. Archaeology is literally digging in the earth in different sites to find out discoveries. Manuscripts of scripture were found. Portions of scripture were found. Different cities and places. In fact, you know what? In the last 50, 60, 70 years, it's profound. Almost everything that was said about the scriptures by higher criticism and liberal theologians has been proven, folks, proven wrong. In their arrogance, they were boasting, oh, Jesus didn't mean it literally. Guess what? He sure did. We've been proved, when you said this tribe didn't exist, yeah, well, we proved, we found some places and we found some items in the ground that says they did exist. 
We found some of their coinage. We found this or that. Or when you said this miracle didn't happen, or this thing, this letter was actually written after the miracle, so they said it happened before, but it actually happened late, uh, much later in history, and you said it happened earlier. Guess what? Datings were brought. All these things were proven wrong. Over Today, most archaeologists and most historians clearly believe in the historicity of the Old Testament and the New. It's profound. But you never hear the news talking about this. You never hear anybody talking about it. But all these guys that were so boastful, so arrogant, to suggest that Jesus wasn't talking literally, have literally been proven wrong by archaeology. I, I could spend days showing you different discoveries. I remember learning a few of them 50 years ago in seminary, but tons has happened since then. As my old professors proclaimed, they said, yeah, guess what? Archaeology is going to show these things to be true. And it has over, 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 over. So much so that you'd have to be crazy to not believe it. That's right. Or just plain arrogant. Arrogance teams up with our ignorance, doesn't it? Telling us all kinds of different things. I remember there was a time when we had three major scientists go into our church. All of them worked at the research laboratory at Deborah Hospital. And the head of the research laboratory was a guy named Dr. David Iannuzzo. He was actually from Boston. And Boston College had a strong Bostonian accent. And I remember talking to David and a couple of those other scientists that came here too. In fact, one of them was a worship leader. We did all kinds of things in this church. These guys were strong creationists, each one of them. Believing the evolutionary model was very, very flawed. Even predicting its demise someday. They said there's just too much evidence in what they call irreducible complexity within the human cell. Just even with a cell, it's just too complex. Things like this just don't happen by mistake. Part one, part two, part three can't evolve. It has to all be there to make it happen. He said this, they're saying a lot of this stuff is just sloppy science, guys. It's not legit. I just couldn't believe the kinds of things they were saying to me. Saying, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I believe it. I'm sitting there preaching sermons and they're drinking it in. I'm like, I'm intimidated by their scientific minds. And they're going, no, you're preaching the truth. Keep close to the Bible. Or do you remember different people from the past? that We've all studied or read like C.S. Lewis, the famous atheist that became a Christian because he studied about the writings and the teachings of Jesus, saying Jesus either has to be a complete lunatic a cre or, 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 or an unbelievable e to egotistical nut, or he actually was the Lord. J. Warner Wallace, remember him? He wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, famous detective down in L.A., famous for solving cold cases, you know, cold cases of murders or other things that have happened that everybody gave up on 20, 30, 40 years ago. And he's going, let's go back and solve them. And he was renowned for solving them. He says, I'm going to take my cold case techniques, understanding when people are lying or things that really find out the truth. I'll apply that to the Bible and I'll show everybody this is not true. But when he went in to actually investigate, study it, he came up with the conclusion, you know what? This is true. Or same thing with Lee Strobel, right? He wrote that book called The Case for Christ. Case for Christ was just a journalist, Chicago Tribune, trying to say, well, listen, I dug into the scriptures trying to show, because I'm a journalist, what people were actually saying, what's really true, what seems to be just plain figurative, what seems to be real, you know. He digs into the scriptures and goes, wow, this is true. Lee Strobel becomes a strong believer. Or stories of others. There's so many more that, that I thought of when I was writing this down. Josh McDowell, the famous intellectual that decided, even in college, I'm going to prove this Bible. Or becomes his speaker traveling around to colleges for the last 30, 40 years telling students about his discovery of the scriptures. 
or, or Dr. Armin Nikolai, you ever heard of him? He, he was at Harvard Medical School, head of the psychiatry department. He just like my friend Frank Wicker and found out, hey, you know what? This is true. This is the best medicine I got in my cabinet. This is it. It's the Word of God. I could go on with name after name, person after person, hopefully impressing you a little bit to think, you know what? I need to look more seriously at this book. I need to actually understand what it's saying. I need to apply this to my life because clearly I don't know some things I need to know. I would challenge anybody here who's skeptical or doubting about the scriptures on the basis of just some of the people I've quoted. You might want to look a little deeper. might want to study a little more. They might have missed something. You're not understanding some things. <laughs> just a week ago or so, I was, somebody had me talking with somebody who is a, a major educational leader in this area. And it's amazing how this person, on his own, started studying the Bible. He's become so impressed. This guy has 200 PhDs. He's become so impressed with the scriptures. He goes, you know, this is true. He says, I've been waking my boys up early and reading Bible to them. What? He says, yeah, I don't go to church or not. But I really believe this book. I think we're coming to what's called the end times. I, I almost fell over like, you believe that? You're, you, you really are. I can't believe it. He said, well, if, if an, an honest reading of this is pretty evident. <sighs> Are you really giving the Bible an honest shake in your life? Over other priorities, other lesser things taking a priority over it. Thirdly, I, yeah, I better go. Scripture is God's words that you need for your life. That's what we're trying to say. In, in the book of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul who wrote 2 Timothy is writing to his, his young, the young man he's been trying to mentor. And his name is Timothy. Paul actually knew Timothy's grandmother and Timothy's mother and knew how they passed their faith on to young Timothy. Timothy now is a leader in a church. And Paul's writing this letter to him saying, well, I, you know what, Tim, I've kind of fought the fight. I'm coming to the end. He could sense something was going to happen. And so he's writing this letter, 2 Timothy. He'd already written, written him one earlier called 1 Timothy. This is an intriguing book. And toward the end, chapter 3, there's only a, a few words left. He, he says something to him like, you know, if there's one thing you got to get, Tim, here it is. Look what he says. All scripture is, 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 is breathed out or inspired, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Tim, you might learn a lot of things in life. You might go, have a lot of things you're trying to figure out and puzzle, puzzle your way through. But one thing you've got to remember is the word of God is God-breathed. That word means inspired. It literally is, comes ultimately from God through human authors written down in the books, in, in the books of the Bible. And I want you to read them. And it'll do four things. Did you notice the string of words he says there? Teach, reprove, correct, and training. Do you understand how they hang together? The first one, teaching, is a, a Greek word meaning, it's a very broad word of all education. The Bible is going to teach you some things. And that teaching will bring you to the place of what? Reproof. Oh, yeah. I guess I really did mess that up. Yeah, I guess I really am proud, or I guess I really am jealous, or I really am, I did lie, and I, I'm not truthful, or I have this problem, or I'm angry at this person. It starts to reprove you, right? Or sometimes we call it conviction. 
So I'm, I'm teaching the word generally. And first thing it does, it reproves me. Okay, I've been going down. The, you know what? I'm going the wrong way. I got to go this way. So what do you do? That's, that's the next word. Correction. You correct your direction. I've been te teaching the word like I'm doing right now. I'm listening to the word. I'm understanding it. It's reproving me. I need to give up the Bible a better shake. I'm not being honest with the scriptures or even honest with myself. And so I, I want to correct my direction. I'm reproved and I correct my direction. And then what do I got to do? Well, I got to train myself to go that way. I'm going to have to learn more. I'm going to have to understand more. I'm going to have to apply more. I'm going to have to learn more. So you correct your direction. That's what he's trying to say. The Word of God is profitable for teaching, for, 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 for um, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And then what's the promise? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped? Yeah. Equipped to love your wife better. Equipped to love your husband better. Equipped to raise your kids better. Equipped to be able to deal with conflict in your life better. Equipped to be able to deal with God better, talk with God better. Equipped to be able to deal with people in church and deal with what your responsibilities are or what your responsibilities aren't. Equipped for every good work. It just covers everything. It goes back to this broad generality. Everything. You're going to find the equipment in this book. Wow, what a statement. Why? Because it's God's breath. It's God's breathe. This is why you so desperately need the Bible. He says this to Timothy, and then what we don't know, he, he didn't know. A few days after that, Nero, the wicked emperor, gets a hold of him and cuts his head off. What? Yeah. His departing words. This is it. You need the Bible. This is it. This is what you're going to have to get. Tim, 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 I could tell you a lot of stuff, but Dig it out yourself. Dig in the Word. I have nine grandkids, and my oldest grandson is named Jim. But his other grandpa's named Jim. His dad's name is Jim. He's got another friend named Jim. So I call him Jimmers. Just to distinguish it, you know, I couldn't call him Jimmers. I call him Jimmers. And his friends laugh at him. Ah, Jimmers, yeah. <laughs> well, but that's what I call him, and he's a cute kid. He's, he's like oh, 15, almost 16, you know, it's like, man, he's, he's a great kid. But like, he likes fishing, I like fishing, we fit together really well. I'm so proud of this kid, he's, he's really doing well. But, back when he was like three or four years old, I remember when he was with my wife, they call my wife Gaga, started with our first granddaughter, but anyhow, they call her Gaga. Anyhow, he goes, Gaga, you don't need to tell me that, I already know. <laughs> oh, yeah, gra Grandma, I know everything. Okay. She says, well, uh, Jimmy, you know, I'm in my 50s, and you're only four. Uh, I know a lot of things you don't know. No, Grandma, I already know. I know everything. Well, thankfully, he grew out of that. <laughs> he grew out of that because he started learning. And now, like I said, I'm so proud of him now at 15 and all that he's learned. But you and I all know, yeah, he's 15. He's got a lot to learn, right? But what you realize is that even at three or four years old, you already think you know. It's internal. It inhabits us. It literally enslaves us. Ignorance works along with arrogance to literally destroy you, drive you away from God, drive you. It's what we need to be saved from is us. That's why it's so important to get this book, these words, in your mind, in your heart. It's your salvation. Salvation just doesn't mean that when you die, you're going to heaven. It means you need to be saved from you. Sin's destroyed you. 
It's caused you to be arrogant and you're really stupid. <laughs> and you need to be saved from that. The Bible saves you from your own stupidity and your own arrogance. Wow! That's one of the major reasons you and I need the Bible so bad. And I claim it just as much for myself. Oh yeah, Lord, I need your word so bad. We all do. Remember what Jesus said? I need to conclude now. When he was being tempted by the devil, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4. Do you remember what he said in verse 4 when the devil said, Oh, Jesus, you haven't eaten for days. Listen, I just changed those rocks into bread. You have all the bread you need. He turns to the devil and says what? And God says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what you're going to need for life. And he's just reminding the devil, devil, you think I need food? No. More than I need food, I need God. Do you understand that's who your life is? That's what you need? More than you need food. More than you need a vacation. More than you need the coronavirus to be over. More than you need anything else. What do you need? God. His word. You got to eat it. You got to consume it. You don't do it. You're dead. You're dead now. You need it that bad. Oh, you know, it's like... Hopefully, after you hear a sermon like this, you want to just go be a monk somewhere and just read. I mean, learn this stuff. I desperately need it. It's the root of all our confusion, the root of all our conflicts, the root of all our depression and our misunderstandings. It's the Word of God. Sharper than any two-edged sword, able to investigate and dig in deep and help you figure out your life. So, I was just thinking about it because I'm thinking about it a lot lately. It's like, oh, okay, man, you know, I'm transitioning out. New guy's going to be transitioning in. So after May, I won't be the senior pastor anymore. I'll be coming back later after a few months break. You know, I'll come back and I'll be, be able to maybe preach or teach or do something else useful around here, whatever I could do. But I'll be a layman just like everybody else here. I'm thinking, well, what, what, what should I tell people here? Well, number I got two things. Number one, Make sure this church centers around the Bible, right? Centers around the Word of God. Holy smokes, this is like vital. This is crucial. If we stop being an instructing church, we, we stop being, we become a stoppable church, not an unstoppable church. Secondly, the church is just a bunch of people. Literally, the word ekklesia, the Greek word for church, just means gathering gathering of God's people. And if God's people don't believe the word, God's people don't study the word, God's people don't, you know, memorize the word, well, then guess what? We're a wimpy church. We're not going to be much of a church. So not only does the church need to get, because you can't get enough just listening to a sermon on a weekend, not if it's vital. It's like, oh, I'll take my vitamins every now and then, and it'll help. No, it won't. got to take it regular. I'll save some money every now and then. No, you better save, save it regularly or you'll end up broke. No, it, it's a discipline. I'm hoping that, I'm going to pray in just a minute. That you'll say, Lord, I'm going to promise you I'm going to learn your word. I want discipline. I need strength. I want to learn the word. I want to apply it to my life. That's what you need. Can I pray with you? Lord, I pray for everyone listening online as well as here in person. that 2021 will be the best year of their life, no matter what happens in this world. 
because they get the equipment they so desperately needed. They get the instruction they so desperately needed. They get the healing they so desperately needed. All from your word. May today be a crucial point in their life when they go, you know what? I need the Bible. I got I to get on a reading program. I got to get on a study program. It doesn't matter how much I learn. I got to learn more. I got to study it. I got to think it. I got to feel it. So Lord, I pray for everyone here. They would go to a whole new level of being instructed by your word. Whether it's listening to YouTube preachers or, or studying it in the Word or watching stuff online, whatever they need to do. Whether it's memorizing Scripture or taking another class in men's ministry or women's ministry or going to a mini church or a, a community group, whatever it takes. Oh Lord, I pray that they would be hungry for your Word and learn it. I ask this, Lord, for everyone listening, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.